I'm Christy Bourne. And I'm Rainier Wild. Together, we're investigating the mysteries of love and relating. We get gritty and dig deep into why love is the tie that binds us together. And also drives us to our knees. This is our story. This is your story. This is Love Like Hell. So last night, I was hanging out with one of my good friends, and um, he says to me, what are we doing here? What are we doing here? And it reminded me of a question. Do you know the question I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about? How we began all this? Is that what we're talking about? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that moment on the path. Yeah, you asked me what I needed to feel more married. And of course, we were talking about a wedding. We were talking about the ceremonial uh, event that was going to happen. And that was a question you brought to my attention. Yeah. What do you need to feel more married? What are we doing here? What is marriage? What is this whole thing that we give a lot of our life to? You know, when I sit here and think about it, I'm, you know, in my early 40s, I've spent well over half my life being married to two people. Yeah. And when you asked me that question, I was kind of shocked. I, I didn't really know what the answer was. Like, what do I need? Well, this is just something that we do. There wasn't a lot of conscious thought besides I wanted to be married to you, but why did I want to be married to you? Right. So whether it's this idea about why do I want to be married or um, what is marriage, what's the goal of marriage, isn't it amazing that we don't really have these conversations? We simply download this rather cultural monolithic ideal um, and dedicate our entire lives to this reality, even when it doesn't work for us so often. Yeah. And all the information that we have in the helping field is about modern marriage, right? Like the conflicts, the issues couples face. It's about modern marriage. Why marriage and where did it come from and why are we ascribing to it? And I know for me, growing up in a very biblical Christian home, marriage was really the only option. And that's why when you asked, well, what do you need to feel more married? I'm not sure. Let me think about it. <laughs> this is so funny. Um, you know, you talked about a biblical view of marriage, and I, I get a, a bit of a kick out of that in particular, because whenever anyone has said that to me ever since I was a teenager, which is why I think I was just, you know, so hated when I went to Christian schools is because I, I knew enough to be dangerous. But anytime I heard someone say something like, you know, what's a biblical view of marriage, I almost inevitably thought, which biblical view of marriage? Is it the one where the patriarchs had multiple wives? Is it the one where Solomon had, you know, like a thousand? Is it concubines? Is it the concubines? Is it, um, is it Jesus who, I mean, at best, he was married to Mary Magdalene, according to Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code. On the other hand, he also said, when we go to heaven, we're going to be like the angels, neither given in marriage nor received in marriage. Is it like Paul who basically abhorred marriage except said, well, it's better to be married than to burn in lust? He was like, wah, wah, <laughs> thumbs down to marriage. Or is it like Jesus in the book of Revelation who has a bride in every city on the earth? He's clearly like a raging polyamorist. Like, which view of marriage are we talking about? <laughs> it must have been my parents' view, right? And their parents' view of Christian marriage. Right. And of course, you know, uh, 
the the Christian world view, whether you whether you bought into it or not, whether you got raised in a Christian home or not, it really is the dominant Western concept of marriage. When we talk about marriage, we're really talking about this amalgam, this this cocktail of multiple strands and understandings that kind of weave themselves in. And one of them is this Christian worldview, this very religious worldview about how people couple and what that means. So obviously that was a large part of your story, but there are other threads that kind of blend themselves into this downloaded and inherited vision of why we do what we do. Yeah, as a society, excuse me, um, we have the traditional view, that Western view that you're talking about. You don't have to be mainstream Christian or Catholic or Mormon. We have this idea of pairing with one other person and we create lineage and family out of it. And that's the mainstream thought around marriage. Now, we also talk about like, are people happy doing that? And why are there 50% and above divorce rates. So that means there's only 50% of marriage rates. That's what it really means. Do you know where we don't see 50% divorce rates worldwide? I have no idea. Countries that don't allow divorce. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Turns it's illegal? Up, yeah, it's illegal or like punishable by, you know, capital offense. Actually, uh, 16th century France is a really good case study. They had a a less than 1% divorce rate. They were a a Catholicized country. They didn't allow divorce. If you were divorcing, it was because it had been annulled by the Pope. But of course, do you know what was permissible? I think sneaky behavior probably was permissible. Is that right? (laughs) Infidelity was the name of the game. So where there wasn't a 50% divorce rate, there was well over a 70 to 80% infidelity rate. Yeah, so you could find love in other ways, even if it wasn't on a certificate, right? That's what was happening is that there were other ways to connect and be romantic with people outside of marriage. What's interesting, though, is that whether we're talking about the 17th century or 16th century France or whether we're talking about today, whether we're talking about Western society or Eastern societies, really, there are these large narratives about love and entanglement and pair bonding and how we connect um, when we say we love someone and want to spend the rest of our life with them. And that really is, I think, the essence of this conversation when we start talking about what is love, what is marriage, what are we doing here? What we're trying to articulate is that we found someone And that someone makes us feel something that we want to keep feeling. And we want to give our life to this kind of union. I think at the heart of it, most people would say, that's really part of what's going on for me. I feel something. I don't want to let that thing go. And it's an open demonstration of that feeling with the people around you signifying this is a significant relationship. And from this moment on, I want people to know that this is my significant person and we're going to create something even more significant afterwards. Yeah, there's a ceremony. There's this, whether you're stomping on the glass or you're all giving toasts in the air, whatever it is, there's a ceremony where everyone gathers around and says, these people who we're connected to 
are doing something. And we're all going to suspend our collective disbelief that this is going to fail in a year to 10 years. We're all going to ignore the relevant statistics. We're all going to ignore the fact that they were just fighting right at the rehearsal. We're going to ignore all this. And collectively, we summon up this very genuine, overwhelming feeling of goodwill where we say, oh, I hope like mad on your behalf that this works. This is going to be the one. This is going to make it. I love the Jim Gaffigan sketch where it's like, and this kingdom will unite with this kingdom and we will all come together to signify this. And it just cracks me up, right? We give our best to the ceremony, but oftentimes we don't give our best to the relationship. Okay. Well, we've given you a preamble so far, but my curiosity is, where did this all come from? I mean, what is marriage? So the story begins with two playful chimpanzees who were looking at one another across the branches. And I can imagine one swinging over to the next and saying, me, you, you, me for life. That seems about right, doesn't it? I don't think they're actually words. I think those would be grunts, right? And more hand motions than words. <laughs> we see it everywhere. Beavers, wolves, muskrats, and most birds all paring down with just one other, their mate for life. And they have courting rituals too. There's cooing and cuddling and burbling and two puffins walking hand in hand or pigeons snogging on the ledge, cooing. And it's not just about sex. They're not just mating. There's those seahorses who hold tails as they parade along the ocean floor, rub noses and kiss each other. The animal kingdom seems full of animals who get together and make it work for life with or without a ceremony. Ah, but not primates. Now primates are different, aren't they? They have a lot of different partners. They don't mate with one for the entirety of their relationship. Now do they? They primp and they preen and they try to get the attention of the female. And if you're a bonobo, well, the female tries to get the attention of the male and has her way with them as well. So there's a split, isn't there, in the animal kingdom? Well, that's true. Of course, we're not talking about wolves or puffins or gibbons, are we? We're talking about the primate called humans, Homo sapiens sapiens. And this particular animal seems a little muddled in what it does from the beginning. We like to camp out and pair bond, but we also seem to like novelty. Like to get frisky, it seems like. It seems like for a lot of our history, there was quite a bit of that. There's no one big story. We're omnivorous. We like different things at different times and different places with different populations. Well, that's right. Anthropologists tell us that there were some ancient tribes that organized around pair bonding, where... A couple set up shop in the forest, 
and that was their domain, and everybody knew it. And then there were some tribes that seemed like they were in a constant swingers party. They were just swapping right and left. It feels like the vast majority of human history, different populations made different decisions for the needs of the moment. Until... Until civilization, which is really only about 8,000 years of human experience up to date. Just a fraction. Such a narrow window. But when that project began to dominate the scope of human history, how we related began to change immensely. It's so interesting because I think one of the things as I've read and researched and and tried to dive a little bit more into the history or anthropology around these topics, one of the things that really jumps off the page is what we've just kind of heard that quite unlike what gets told to us about the monolith of marriage or the monolith of monogamy, that actually human history is, um, well, if I could use a word, humans are really omnivorous. Now, the word omnivore means that we have the capacity to eat a lot of different things. We're not herbivores and we're not carnivores. We're both. We are like the rats and the pigeons and the pigs. We can eat just about anything. And the same is true relationally. It seems like our capacity to have different experiences across relational dynamics is pretty exponential. Yeah, and we don't really even question some of these concepts because we start now. And you're talking about the concept of pairing and civilization. We only have 8,000 years. But before that, so much time existed in which freedom to act and behave in ways that now are unimaginable. Right. Humans organized themselves beginning 8,000 years ago around a series of problems that they developed and innovated ways of solving, largely through agriculture and the constellation of technologies that formed around that, like hierarchy, patriarchy, militarism, um, just to name a few. Yeah. There wasn't a lot of equality after that time. Right? We see before 8,000 years ago, equality in tribalism and things of that nature. But as soon as we started to touch civilization, uh, the patriarchy or masculine uh, civilization started to take place. Right. And, and of course, that's a, that's a complicated topic that deserves, I think, some of its own treatment. You know, if you think about what agriculture is, agriculture, which could be boiled down to something as simple as seed saving and storage and then continuing to have crop rotation across time, requires heavy lifting. Mm -hmm. And so male bodies were privileged over female bodies in that moment. They were quite necessary. Not only that, but as we stored our surplus supplies to feed our growing populations, we began to be afraid of having those stores taken. And so needed to develop a new technology called militarism to stop invading forces or to become an invading force ourselves. That also required uh, another element of strength or even viciousness, shall I say, that males seemed to be better predisposed to it, picked up on older um, threads of our evolution. And so as males were privileged in that, they were given a role uh, and assumed the role that we call patriarchy. And they were organized, organized a whole society around those protective and preserving elements, so mm -hmm. to speak. They were protective and they were productive. 
and they kept everyone safe and moving forward. And so women in that kind of lost some of the power. Now, I would say this idea around like a dowry or a birthright, you know, um, I always thought like, gosh, I would be the the um, low man on the totem pole, right? Because I was the only girl in a family of four three older brothers. Like, what did I have entering into a relationship? If we use this kind of old paradigm, I would think like, oh my gosh, because uh, women were valuable based upon where they came from and what they could offer another tribe or another family group. Right. Now, here we're getting into what did a marriage serve um, 8,000 years ago within civilization? Again, we're talking about agricultural societies, which are called anthropologically delayed return societies, meaning that um, you store up today what you will consume tomorrow, as opposed to immediate return societies, which are much more hunter-gatherer. I go out, If I'm hungry, I go out and I kill um, a friendly little rabbit, and I bring that home, and I feed the tribe with that, those scraps. But a delayed return society definitely has its own way of doing things. And so we begin to see this in the Near East, in the, uh, in the Middle East, uh, with Mesopotamian culture, with Egyptian culture, with Chinese cultures, and Latin American cultures that begin to develop in distinct ways. And so we see these uh, new ways of relating and trying to establish the needs of the moment. And that's where pair bonding in these specific civilizational ways comes in. What was the greatest need for a family in that moment? The greatest need was to have allies. We didn't want to be defenseless and weak against other families that were developing large alliances. So we utilized our relational network to grow our family structure. So I would disagree with you about your uh, importance. I would think that as the only daughter of a household that already had three sons, your father would be well-equipped. He would have you know, a, an heir apparent. He would have a backup. He would have a warrior. And then he would have someone who he could ally another family with. Oh yeah, we would have been so wealthy. Great perspective. I always imagined that I would just be kind of like, oh, you know, <laughs> I wouldn't have had much. But in that perspective, uh, we would be aligning with another group for safety, for protection, for product. And that makes a lot of sense. In fact, that is, civilizationally speaking, the sole reason why marriage would have been so important. Marriage was a tremendously important feature to bring clans together and create strong networks of resources so that you and your people could survive. So it never had to do with love. It never really had to do with desire. It really had to do about how do we form connections so we're okay and the bad guys can't get in. That's right. It was a way of preserving your assets in the world. And it wasn't just about... Um, Interestingly enough, women being shuffled off and marrying these, you know, horrible, uh, you know, grotesque um, nobles from other lands. There are records, for instance, from China of young sons saying, do I have to marry her? My God, you know, this is awful, right? It, it, there was this long history of people who were now being pledged to one another to do the hard work 
of negotiation. Today, it's done between ambassadors, right? You have two ambassadors sit down. They write a treaty together. Borders are set. But back in the old days, it was a marriage ritual. But, you know, marriage wasn't always just between a girl and a boy for assets. You know, actually, the the Nez Perce uh, in the Pacific Northwest, an indigenous tribe, they would marry parts of the body to one another. They still maintained autonomy, but they wanted to symbolize some important mm, bonding between these family networks. So instead of pledging the whole person, they would, uh, I'll give you my elbow for her elbow. Our elbows will be married. Isn't that great? I don't even understand the purpose of it, but... I think the fact is, is that we're so interconnected that, that it is possible. It, it makes sense. It's a hilarious aspect to me. It, what it demonstrates is that it seems like whatever the culture was, there was a growing understanding among human populations that to survive on this planet, um, you had to depend upon your clan your tribe. In fact, if you think about it, the idea of a couple meeting one another for love, these two kind of primates seeing each other across a crowded jungle and eloping away from the family, well, what good would that do? They would die in the jungle. So even in more egalitarian and hunter-gatherer days, the notion of marrying for love did not exist. Almost everything starting in those spaces and time and then continuing into the civilizational project with its, um, with its focus on agriculture, everything was dictated by trying to augment, trying to grow your resources and your base. And not all marriages look the same in all those examples. Like we have examples of marriage, but marriage can be open. It can be among different members um, and lots of different tribes. Uh, multiple fathers would, um, you know, a woman would have multiple males. And the idea was, is that all the males didn't know who was the father of the baby. So, so everyone then would invest. And I think that's a really interesting picture is that the tribe or the village was more important than the individual. Yeah, you're talking about the the tribe in Venezuela who um, the, the child was actually seen as fathered by all of the potential males the, the, the woman had been with during that time. And it was this beautiful sense of it takes a village to raise a child. Yeah, this idea of a, a baby daddy, there was everyone was the baby daddy, right? Everyone was participating in helping to make sure that the tribe was strong versus one person and maybe one person that didn't really want to do it. Yeah. Again, talking about marriage here and that while marriage was accepted as a way of growing your tribe and lineage, there were exceptions to this. You know, you talked about um, marriage within households. Well, there are two really interesting examples of this. One comes to mind, Egyptian nobility that basically wanted to keep property rights inside the family. They had tremendous property holdings. And so the idea of marrying outside the family was really very frightening for them. And so... It caught up to them though, didn't it? It sure it really did. did. Yeah. So they had this, you know, well-known sibling and sometimes parent-child marriages that would occur. King Tut is a great example. And you see, you see the skeletal remains of that. You know why there's an incest taboo. Um, but 
what you experience there is a culture that said, huh, no, the most important part about property rights is keeping it to ourselves as this familial structure, which just goes to serve the point that marriage had everything to do with um, maintaining your power base and growing and expanding your power base. The Egyptian royals knew that. Another uh, tribe that knew that was in, I think it's uh, Western China called the Na. And this was kind of mythologized for years. People didn't actually even know if this was true uh, until the 1970s, uh, and it was discovered in southwestern China. But there is a tribe in which brothers and sisters live together and are married to one another, jointly raising, educating, and supporting the children to whom the sister gives birth, but they're not the brother's kids. So the siblings are married to one another, they consolidate the power. They keep the power in the family. They keep the, the assets in the family. But the sister takes discreet lovers who visit her in the middle of the night. No one knows how the kids get there. They're not her concubines. They're not, she doesn't have anything to do with it. They visit her in the night. The kids happen. And the brother and the sister maintain the marriage. That feels like the stork. The stork delivers the baby. Right. Like what happens? What kind of questions are being told in that household around sex education? <laughs> right. Right. Well, and then you you find, you know, another culture, the Pidiha, um, who the really great anthropologist and linguist Daniel Everett did so much work to bring forward. But he talks about the transient nature of monogamy within that. So again, marriage was a thing that happened. It was signified in very simple ways. And what it looked like was you shared your house with a person. Well, that was definitely a clash of cultures in which, you know, the Pidiha you're talking about was uh, a civilization butted up against this tribal living, which no one had touched for thousands and thousands of years. And so they didn't have any reference of what outside marriage should look like. And they, they pair bonded and they would do it for a certain amount of time. But if I decided that I liked that person over there more, I would just go out in the woods with them and I would have a good time and I could decide if I wanted to stay with them or not. Yeah. And, and, and I love how they, they signified not staying. I just moved to their house. <laughs> I, I uproot and, and travel to the next hut over. Yeah. Our, our, our roll around in the forest floor was so great that now I'm going to move over to her house because that's really great. But here's the thing. If I come back to my original house and my spouse catches me... If it was just a roll in the hay and nothing more is what you're saying. Right. If it was just a roll in the hay, there are consequences. Do you remember what the consequences are? Yeah, yeah. Your, um, your wife or the person that you had paired with before, she would get to hit you over the head Right. As long as she would, I think it was overnight, she got to humiliate you in front of everyone right. and hit you over the head and you had paid your consequence and then you could come back into the fold. Yeah. There was definitely like a, a, a probation time that lasted roughly for about 24 hours in which the, particularly the women of the tribe would laugh at you. They would shame you. Your wife would hit you over the head and then you come back and then move on. Yeah, there was an acceptance for it. But what I like about this story was that civilization, in terms of what we know about it, um, monogamy or religious uh, relationships and marriages, when they butted up against the Pitiha, there was um, an idea that this was wrong or you shouldn't do this. And they learned over time that actually was a more 
uh, beautiful and flowing type of bonding that was happening. And in this situation, this scientist said, hey, I don't know if we're doing it right. Well, hey, why don't we talk about that thing that we've been planning on talking about for quite a while? It's called indulgence. Whoa, did you just drop the name just like that? I did. I'm so excited to talk about indulgence. I said it again. The name or like the pleasure principle? Both, perhaps. Okay, so what is indulgence? This is an eight-week digital immersion. It's about building a fireproof relationship. You'll get to work with me and Rainier. Yeah, we teach all the principles on lighting the spark, reigniting the fires of intimacy, or creating an inferno of passion. See what I did there? All the analogies right there about fire. (laughs) That was really good. Thank you. You're really good with words. For us, this isn't like haphazard. This is being intentional about the kind of relationship that you want. And we think relationships should be fiery or on fire, but not burned to the ground. Yeah. Indulgence isn't really a program. It's a way of life. And in this eight-week course, which is really about self-mastery in relationship to others, you learn all kinds of skills and techniques and frameworks by which you can approach relationships if you're single, being able to rekindle that spark if you're together with someone, and taking good to great in the existing relationships you have. Yeah. So we really talk about authentic expression. We show how to show empathy and validation in relationships, how to have more curiosity and imagination. And we talk about the erotic and intimacy. You mean basically the places where relationships fall apart? Yeah, we try to enhance those places. Instead of them being a pitfall, we really want to zone in on them and say, how do we make these aspects better in relating? So this is an eight-week digital immersion. You get eight incredible on-demand videos that have fantastic content. You also get four live questions and answers with us, as well as the opportunity for for a bonus one-on-one meeting directly with Christy and I. This is an exciting opportunity for people who long for great connection. You also get the community of peers who are talking about our experiences and expressing what's going on in relationship. This is a wisdom community also where we learn from the experiences of one another. And I couldn't be more excited to have that. There's nothing better than having people around you that want the same thing. People that are dedicated to not just having good relationships, but having great relationships and waking up to their uh, connection in conscious ways. Relationships often fall asleep so easily. And in this program, we're saying, we're not going to give you steps. We're going to allow you to wake up to who you are and how you're relating to people in your life. So if you're interested in indulgence, why don't you go over to the link in the show notes here or in the bio over at Instagram uh, under Rainier Wild, and you can access the application to be a part of that. Get involved now. It is, in fact, a space-limited situation, and we want you to be a part of it. That's something that you desire to do. We really, really value this, and we want you to start now. This is going to be an amazing time starting at the end of July and going for eight weeks. Let's get on fire here. Now, here we're we're talking about a number of different cultural approaches to the idea of marriage. 
Marriage, which serves the purpose of bringing multiple family groups together to consolidate resources. But there are different ways of doing that, and we've just, we've just elucidated them. And different cultures or civilizations had different needs at the moment. So what we've largely been talking about are hunter-gatherer societies that, you know, they can be pretty transitory in their needs and they need one thing one moment. And so the Pitiha is an example of that. Or we've been talking about agricultural societies, sedentary, fixed societies, and they have different needs. Again, Egypt or the Na were examples of that. Um, But we haven't talked about pastoralists. So pastoralist cultures, which are neither hunter-gatherers, nor are they agriculturalists, which are fixed sedentary, they're people who move with the herds. Now, pastoralists tended to have a different approach to marriage or coupling than the others. Do you know what pastoralists look like? I have no idea. So I'm on the edge of my seat. What did it look like? So pastoralists tended to believe and tended to attach an idea that the male, because they were very patriarchal cultures, because you had to shoo away the people who would her, uh, take your herds, um, they tended to be most warlike, so they depended on the males quite a bit. Males were rewarded in battle um, by receiving slaves, concubines. You might also want uh, wives. Um, to have more children because you wanted more soldiers. You wanted more people to tend to the sheep um, or the herds. And it was all driven by the patriarch. He was the one who had complete control of the marriage. The woman was entirely dependent on his will and his rule. In those stories, there was often a sense of uh, being bonded, the women, whether you were his first wife, second wife, or 12th wife, bonded to that patriarch for life. The male would own you, just like he would own his herds. Now, here's something interesting. What were the pastoralist cultures that you know of in ancient history? Well, it reminds me of biblical culture. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob come to my mind. That's right. We're talking about with pastoralists here, um, the very roots of modern monogamous society, which has a very specific view of ownership or for lifeness to this, which isn't actually or wasn't necessarily shared by agriculturalists or by hunter gatherers, but was very specific to the tribes of the Middle and the Near East who herded their cattle and their sheep across these vast stretches and wanted very large families. Oh my goodness, it makes so much sense. As you're talking about it, the roots of what we understand as marriage and being all-encompassing, right? Almost like submissive in a lot of ways. Um, We can't break those bonds and we see the severity of divorce that happens when we do that. There's lots of being outcast or punished or shame involved in that, not having a lot of autonomy or thought or will or behavior. And that makes so much sense as we've seen that shift in, in relationship and marriage. Now, the history gets a little more intricate because, you know, that did exist, but also right alongside it were other um, 
I'll call them more, we'll call them more secular understandings of it, but they weren't any more secular or sacred. They were just different culture understandings of it, like the Greek culture or the later the Roman cultural understandings. The Romans, um, women had a lot of power, actually. Their men were often at war, and so the women were the matriarchs of the domus. Everything happened because the woman said so. The Romans also had a really interesting understanding of how to get married. There was no marriage ceremony. There was just the intention. I intend to marry you. I I have this feeling in my heart. We're married. Kind of reminds me of Cold Mountain. What was the... What was the statement in that movie, Cold Mountain? Oh, yeah. I marry you, I marry you, I marry you. Uh, said in that great Southern accent of Jude Law, a Britisher trying to imitate a Southern gentry. Um, but there was this idea of intentionality. I intend to marry you, and so it is so. Same with divorce. I intend to divorce you, and so it is so. So actually, the Romans were pretty serial monogamous. They believed in the value of bringing together households. But they also uh, weren't above putting those away. And you can see why that pastoral idea was actually quite important because in some ways it gave stability. When you're talking about, I can break my bonds or I can enter into bonds, I could see how that transitional piece would bring a lot of fear, instability to households, right? Like maybe women had some power, but as soon as they said, oh, hey, we're not doing this anymore, then their power was gone. That's right. And and actually, you're on to something now. You're on to these different cultures had different needs. And uh, we see that with the Athenians. The Athenian Greeks begin to develop a form of society that we now understand as democracy, in which one person had one vote. But there was a problem. When one landowner male showed up to vote at the Athenian uh, congressional meetings, um, there was an issue with this age-old way of bringing clans together. If their clan was large enough and strong enough, he didn't just have one vote. He had hundreds of votes behind him. So the Athenians had to find a way to break up, to chisel apart this idea of bringing together clans and powers. So they were pretty smart. They said, actually, you're only an Athenian citizen if your parents were Athenian both Athenian, meaning you can't bring in outside powerful forces through marriage. You have to limit the supply. That was their way of addressing this clanship idea. It began to diminish the idea, and the Romans kind of continued on this theory. They understood you can't really have, you can't really have families be too big or too stable because they'll destabilize the state. What I'm really noticing in this conversation is that we have really widowed down our idea of marriage when this conversation is so vast and so big. Where did it come from? Why did we do it? Who did it well? Did anybody? I mean, like, as we're talking about it, there was so many different ways in which people decided that pair bonding was good, uh, lockdown on resources was, was good, protection was good. And then we end up here. I mean, there are so many different ways as you're talking about it that like have evolved over time. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, we're getting closer to the modern origins of it. So this pastoralist vision 
in which there's a lot more ownership and there's a lot more stability of relationship, eventually boiled down to this idea of one man and one woman. So we see that in Jewish culture 2,000 years ago, that the same concepts of uh, the patriarch really holds uh, the, the key to relationship forever, that they're bonded to him for life. He owns um, the female, he owns the children, he owns the property, and it's for life. Unless, of course, he dies, in which case she has to marry his brother, and then he owns her for life, and so on down. Um, we see that that, you know, it, it's basically a backwater culture for a lot of time until about 300 uh, AD, in which case a Roman emperor named Constantine makes a Jewish spinoff religion, Christianity, the state religion. And suddenly with that blessing comes the concepts of Christian marriage. Now I say comes the concepts, but for a lot of cultures, it didn't change much for a long time. And in fact, it would take about another 700 years or so before a German prince named Charles Magnus or Charlemagne who was uh, the father of kind of uh, Northern Germanic French culture, Charlemagne, he kind of came into uh, an understanding where he was setting up his own empire. And he didn't like the fact that his Germanic princes were all raging polygamists. He didn't like the fact that they were making large families, making big families. And then they would divorce one person and they would marry someone else. Or they would find such and such princess and they would bring... And why wouldn't, why wouldn't Charles like that? Why, why would Charlemagne be a little annoyed that these lords and nobles were getting married a lot? Any guesses? Well, I'm sure they're surpassing his uh, ability to create family. And he's getting overshadowed by a lot of those things. And his values or morals don't really hold that. It actually had less to do with values or morals because he was pretty amoral. He just wanted to keep his empire together. It had everything to do with the threat of their families. Yeah, and who wouldn't? He was seeing it happen before them, right? So Charlemagne made this really great edict. He said, actually, guys, this way of doing business is no good. All this divorce, it's horrible. And oh, multiple spouses, awful. This will not do. What we should be doing is the Christian way, which is marrying one man, one woman for life. And then he enforced it with the princes. And then he didn't have to worry about their giant, large families because it was just one man, one woman, and as few or many kids as that one man and one woman could produce, which was a whole heck of a lot less to compete with for the king. Okay, let me see if I'm understanding this. You're telling me that the modern vision we have of marriage, its origin is going way back to basically uh, property, protection, taking care of kingdoms, uh, prizing your fields and, and all the resources you had. It really had nothing to do with love, desire, any of that. <laughs> Right. Um, it didn't have much to do with love or romance. It didn't have much to do with choice. 
had everything to do with power, with maintaining power, with expanding your power. So we have this period of time where before 8,000 years ago, in terms of the ways that we're behaving uh, sexually, it was really expansive. There weren't a lot of rules. There weren't a lot of faux pas and things like that. We were pretty natural in our environment. Then comes civilization in which we start to pair off and protect certain groups and to ally with one another. And from that becomes this idea of marriage. And so we have sex, we have marriage. Where does love and desire and romance come in? Yeah, well, this is also a cultural story because the truth is that love has always kind of existed. Wherever there is stability and there is choice and there is egalitarianism, meaning two people who can both choose, there is love. So we see love in French courts in, um, in the Middle Ages. We see love in the samurai culture in Japan. We see love in Persian poetry. But all of those places represent an immense amount of privilege, an immense amount of stability, and an immense amount of egalitarian choice. This was quite simply not true for most people who existed most of the time. In fact, it would have been completely abnormal for most of the world to imagine choosing your life partner based upon those ideas of choice, of desire, of this burning in my bosom. They would have not only found that perhaps frightening and disorienting, they even found it dangerous. In fact, one of our most famous literary poets and, and creators, William Shakespeare, immortalizes this truth. All of Shakespeare's romances are actually tragedies. They're moral tales telling us the dangers of what happens when a boy and a girl fall in love and don't, in fact, do what their parents tell them to. So survival was the ultimate and we did everything we could to survive. That means pairing with people that might not treat us well or that would help us create family, family lineage. That was of utmost importance. And it was frivolous. It was dangerous. It was insecure. It was silly to, to pair for love. Yeah, and it was the exception. It was the great exception, not only because there was cultural pressure not to do it, but quite simply, I think it would have been unimaginable. It's not just that you shouldn't do this. It's just that you don't do this. This isn't what that institution is about. It would be like going to the plumbing store and imagining that you could, you know, drive a, a, a NASCAR race. Like the two just didn't mix love and marriage. That's weird. It makes me think of uh, the story Fiddler on the Roof where the father, Tevye, he's looking at his girls and every single one of them is choosing differently. One is choosing tradition. One is choosing love. One is choosing another uh, religion. Another is 
choosing another political stance. And he's watching the world in front of him as he knows it being dismantled for all kinds of reasons that don't make sense to him, right? Because tradition and family and security were the utmost important. So when he saw someone do that in his family, like, you've got to be crazy. I can't even allow you to do that. Right. It, it was it was so strange and it would have been threatening to these traditional cultures to see that and to witness that. But you know who it wasn't threatening to? Who? The powers that be. I don't want to be too conspiracy theorist here, but it, it, it doesn't take a great genius to see that the states, as they've existed since Charlemagne or since the Athenian vision of democracy, have understood the danger of bringing together large familial systems. Large familial systems, larger and larger networks attached by kinship, actually threaten the idea of representative government or power. This idea that uh, a person isn't just themselves, one vote, but a person is much more than themselves. They're their whole clan. And if you piss off Joe, well, you've pissed off 3,000 people in Appalachia. It actually becomes very, very threatening to state systems to have this idea or this kinship model of marriage. Instead, what becomes much more palatable is this idea of one man, one woman falling in love for life. Are you saying it's about control now? Is that what you're trying to say within that? And that people that perhaps have money or wealth can rise above some of that control and choose what they want? (laughs) There's no cabal who's issuing this edict and creating a set of plays for the playbook. And um, there's no one dictating this. No one person benefits from this. But our current contemporary modern culture, which begins in its current um, epoch about 200 years ago, has been extraordinarily motivated to have this particular story of love plus marriage, it actually works out for the state and the powers that be to maintain that kind of, you used a word earlier, stability or control. In fact, this is why like our modern institutions give great incentive for you to be married. Like, think about it. Why does a government give a tax break to a married couple? Why? Because they love marriage because it's so good. And like, it's just like, it's, it's God's way. And so we just want to reward God's way because we're the U.S. government and we, we believe in God's way. Do you think that's it? I have to say that I haven't really thought a lot about the government's interest in, in my marriage. Yeah, it's kind of a funny thing. Like they're incentivizing a vision of relationship a vision of relationship that looks like stability. In fact, one of the reasons why some of these um, decisions were made with a tax code and when they were made had everything to do with returning from a war, the first great World War I, in which soldiers returning were seen as a real threat. They had been through some very traumatic things. And like every warrior culture, When warriors return home from those terrors, they are dangers to the fabric of society. 
you know, Western governments understood that. They had seen it happen. They were no, they were no idiots. They had studied history. They knew that warriors coming home who didn't have a war to fight were dangerous. And so one of the really great lawmakers and innovators of the time has this really great phrase where he says, it is best to make each man the king over his own castle. <laughs> Give him a castle. Give him a queen, and he won't try and take over ours, right, is the idea here. So this is one of the first times we see that incentivization process happen. And again, it's to try and make sure that we're consumed with our business and not, in fact, taking away from the fabric of the state. It occurs to me that oftentimes when we're in a society when we're in the flow of what we believe is normal or average, that we don't often question how we got here. And we don't uh, question the systems or the programming that we have. We just say, well, this is the way it's been. This is the way I do things. Um, you don't even have to have a religious background to think that, right? We're talking about a Western idea of marriage and love and desire and romance. This is just the next stage of life. This is human growth and development is that you will end up being paired to someone and marry and create a family. We don't think about where did this come from? How did we get here? And do I believe it? Do I buy into it? Um, we just like, we're jumping off right in the middle of it. Right. And today we exist in a time that has its own problems. In fact, a lot of the challenges that we exist in today are unprecedented. The solutions of the past are inadequate and people are in fact beginning to determine new structures and new ways of being in order to address those problems, right? This just makes sense, right? Like uh, as it turns out, it would be really silly to invest in the buggy industry, right? In 1905, that would be ridiculous, Instead, you want to invest in the automobile industry. But the guy in 1904 doesn't know that. He's still investing in the buggy industry because he doesn't quite know that the, that the car is going to leave him behind. But a lot of us are still investing in the buggy when the car has already been invented. Now, <laughs> I'm not necessarily talking about new forms of relationship because what we've understood is that these forms of relationship are as long as human history in one way or the other. But the forms change, just like the needs change. And what I really think about this as you're talking is that when I have information, when I can see origins, when I can see the history, it allows me to make choices that is not necessarily based on programming. It's not necessarily based on perhaps the government's incentivization for my life. I can look at it and think like, oh, what is this? And where did it come from? And how is it serving me? Or how is it serving us? Or how is it serving uh, couples in general? And I get to make more informed choices, not based on the life where I was just plunged into in 1981, right? Like, oh, I can see the arc of history and who I am in it. Right. The philosopher Martin Heidegger says that there is a throne quality to living, a thrownness, where we've been thrown into the river, which is like a rapids plunging us along in the course of the mainstream of history. And so none of us think like that. I uh, think, oh, well, this is just life. But we were thrown into it, right? Somebody threw a party and we showed up late. 
Like we didn't make up these rules. We didn't invent these stories. And yet here we are, we find ourselves in these places. But now we wake up, we look at it, we go, huh, this is interesting. And even if that silly story that Rainier and Christie told is total bullshit, maybe I'm beginning to go, huh, well, what is the point of marriage? What am I doing here? Because here's the thing. When I was 18 and I wanted to grow up, I knew one thing. I should get married because that's what you do when you want to grow up. Thank you for listening to this episode of Love Like Hell. We appreciate your support so much. Listen, would you do us a small favor? If you love the show, will you leave a fabulous five-star review? And don't forget to share this with all your friends. Okay. Well, until next week, I'm Rainier. And I'm Christy. Live like mad and love Love like like hell. Love like hell. That was my signature. Uh.